beloved listeners. This is Adrian and Autumn, and we are excited to bring you a bonus episode that is um, an interview that we got to have with each other discussing Autumn's incredible essay on consensus in the book Holding Change. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm excited for people to read your essay and also and the to whole get to hear that conversation and the whole book. Yes. Um, and before we get into that, uh, we wanted to take a moment and just acknowledge that there's been a lot of loss happening and we've both been really touched by that loss. We know that you as our listeners are touched by that loss and we just wanted to take a moment and be together in it. Um, many of you know that we lost our cousin Barry Joe um, in this COVID crisis and um, we have now crossed that threshold where one in 500 people living in the U.S. have died uh, from COVID, while a million other people have died of other things at the same time. This is a massive time where a lot of our, our people are being taken. Um, in this past week, we found out that we lost an incredible organizer named Richard Wright, Richard Jire, uh, who was a Um, masculinity scholar, Afrofuturist writer, DJ, incredible human being. Um, We also recently lost Michael K. Williams, an incredible actor who was a a beloved member of the community. Mm -hmm. And earlier this year, we lost Grandma Betty, who was the people's grandmother, uh, Malachi Garza's grandmother. Um, We lost Elandria. It's now been one year since we lost Elandria Williams, an incredible, Mm -hmm. incredible organizer. And we lost LL, and so many of us are um, grieving concurrently more deaths than we've ever held at one time. Mm -hmm. And some of them are close and some of them are far away. Um, And there's one in particular, Autumn, that I know you wanted to uplift, and uh, so I'm handing it over to you. Yeah, this was just on September 14th. our movement community lost an amazing organizer and teacher named Angela Burkfield, who she died on September 14th after about a two-year-long um, battle with cancer, left behind um, her partner and two beautiful young children. Um, and Angela was the co-author of Parenting for Social Justice, which is the title that just came out last month. Um, um, or just a few months ago, actually. And and that book really, that book project arose from years of workshops that she taught under the same name and just a body of work that she helped co-create with um, a bunch of other really amazing organizers. She was also um, a founding member of the Root Center for Social Justice in Vermont. Um, and just one of those people who really um, lived her work and worked her life. And um, just as a little tribute to her, um, I found someone on the Parenting for Social Justice um, Instagram page posted, reposted an excerpt from Angela's blog. Um, And this is something that she wrote back in February of this year. Um, The post is titled, What Do I Tell Them? And she says, as I've been able to connect more deeply to my soul, or my truest essence. I'm able to catch glimpses of my kids' shining souls. 
And for brief moments, I feel a soul-to-soul connection. This is harder than it sounds, and also way easier than I thought it would be. Instead of me looking at my phone or focusing on, did you empty the dishwasher? Did you brush your teeth? Make that thank you card for your Grammy. I put that aside and then just with them, their purest self. When I can do this, I feel an intense joy and I can feel both of our souls expand. This is living in the present moment. More laughter and play automatically flow into our lives when we are connecting this way. This practice reverberates. It makes it easier for me to connect on a soul level with all those beings around me humans, birds, trees, water, and all. And it builds my kids' feeling of what it is to really connect with another being. This kind of connection is foundational for a world where social justice is realized. When we understand and feel our connection to all beings, we know that when other beings are hurting, we are also hurting. We are inspired to change our actions, to create what it is that will heal us, all of us. She's just amazing. She was That's incredible. just amazing. So, yeah, I'm just yeah. holding her and holding her family and holding our whole movement community. I mean, this has been um, – yeah, I mean, as you said, it's been a, a time when we are more aware of more losses, holding more losses at a time um, than most of us have been – called to experience in our lives and yeah and um, you know there's the complicated levels of it like knowing that this is a mother of two young children you know we just lost an organizer Malika Aleem in Chicago who also left behind two young children and it's like the ripple effect of the person their immediate family the movement community they supported the projects that they worked on um and the work they could have done. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm always trying to work to to find some belief that's like, okay, this was their whole life and this was this is all of it and mm-hmm. how to be in right relationship to it. Yeah. But I can't shake that feeling that right now so many are going so quickly and so young. Um so we wanted to have a moment together. We wanted to just take a moment of silence and we want to invite you to name your people, right? Name them in your heart, name them out loud, um, write their names down. You know, if you don't have an ancestor altar, create one, right? Mm -hmm. Make a space for the people you love who are now spirit, ancestor, beyond. Make a place for them to still be present, to be heard by you, to be visited by you. And in this moment, this can be an altar of your attention. Let's just bring their names into your heart and into your mind. And we're going to take a moment of silence together to honor our dead. Thank y'all. We love you. you. We're holding you all close 
And now we're going to transition into something a little more enlivening. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Mm-hmm. going to be having a conversation about this book, Holding Change, um, which just came out before now. (laughs) All right. I think that I see it. Go live with Autumn. I see my sister coming live with me. (gasps) Yes. (laughs) Okay. It takes a whole village of where are we comments. <laughs> We're in outer space, dude. So listen. I'm like, what's happening? Why can't I do it on my computer? I didn't even know you could open Instagram on a computer. So there we go. Right. I thought you could learning. only do a live event on Instagram from a computer because I don't know anything about this is my first in case anyone is wondering. No one's wondering now. <laughs> this is my first IG live event. I have no idea what's going on. I had even like set up my whole lighting situation really nicely specifically for a computer screen. So oh, yeah, no. Whatever. That's, I'm so sorry to hear that. I put on blue lipstick for you. I love that. I put on um, bright pink lipstick for you to match my bright pink nails. Um, let me see. Oh, those nails are fantastic. And my nails my sister. match your hair. They do match my hair. And my hair is covering my headphones. Do you see what I'm doing there? Like, anyway, oh. It's a whole situation. Yeah. Okay. Here you go. More blue. Mm, sister. So I'm here to interview you because you wrote an amazing piece on consensus. In this book. In that book. <laughs> and... Um, I also have the book. Oh, and you're drinking from a mug I gave you. It's oh all God. coming together. So I don't think that most people in the world know about this mug. They need to know about that mug. Show them the mug. This is an important just cultural artifact. So for those of you who are Jurassic Park fans, and I the original <laughs> Jurassic Park, not Jurassic World, this no. is Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm in, uh, you know, the really epic scene where he's injured himself and he's lying actually in the back of a Jeep. But in this mug, he's lying against a desert landscape. Yeah. And Adrian gave this mug to me several years ago. Cause you and had to have it. Cause I had to have it. You had to have it. <laughs> I'm using a mug that says reading is sexy, but it's all black. And it only says that when the tea is actually hot and it's like hot at the right temperature to drink it. That's um, so now it's past that, but I'm still going to drink it. I don't care. Mm. Mm. <laughs> don't spit it out so <laughs> <laughs> and here we are and here we are so all right so I have questions for you right centering grounding we are here um I'm so excited to talk with you about this you have been a teacher of consensus for me for years Um, And also, I want people to know that I could have asked you to write about almost any topic (laughs) um, that is covered in this book because you're such a skilled facilitator. And so the conversation that we're going to have, I have some questions for you. And then if other people have questions, if you want to ask a question, 
you'll need to put it in the little thing that has a cue on it. So there should be a little bubble on the bottom of your screen that has a cue mm -hmm. on it. That's the question area. If it's not there, I'm not going to be able to track what's happening in the chat. Right. And je refuse. So, and for those of you who are like, where? It's directly to the right of the add a comment box. That's right. And also no one else will come on the live with us. It'll just be Autumn and I talking. And then mm -hmm. if you send a question, right. All right. You're not going to get like elevated to. No, you're not going to become oh! the interviewee. Yeah. No, don't worry about it. All right. And it's, and that's a good thing because right. we've got quality content for your, for your enjoyment. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I kind of remixed the order, but I think it's all the similar things that, that you should expect. Okay. And the first is, you know, facilitation really for both of us is a way of life. Like it's a way that we approach almost every single thing that we're doing um, in our work, in our family life, in every other space. So I wanted to ask you in your own narrative of facilitation, when did you become a facilitator? Mm. Um, <clears throat> well, that's a really, I like, I like this question of like, what was the, it, it, are you wondering more like when did I start doing it professionally or when did I start like IDing? Yeah. Like this is something I'm doing. You're like, I'm doing facilitation. Like, you know, I feel like mm -hmm. for me, my story is always like, Oh, I was doing it before I recognized that it was mm -hmm. something that facilitation was even a thing. I was like, right. I'm in it. Right. Um, and so when I tell the story, when I say like, Oh, I've been doing this for like 25 years, it's because I'm like, Oh, I explicitly started doing it at a certain point in my life. Like where I was like, I am facilitating this. Bop, 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 bop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I think I came at it, I think I came at it sort of an opposite way in as mm -hmm. much as I, I first like discovered facilitation by realizing that I wasn't doing it mm -hmm. through a facilitation fail. And then I was like, I'm going to learn how to do this. Um, <laughs> Because I don't fail at things. You're like, um, that's, this is, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. <laughs> I mean, of course I, I do fail at things, but, but uh, it was like, a, I remember I was, I was, um, I spent my junior year studying abroad at the University of Oxford in England. Mm -hmm. And I got involved with the student organizing, a student organizing group there. And because I am an extrovert and a performer, I showed up at a meeting and there was a person who was supposed to facilitate the meeting who wasn't there. And mm -hmm. someone was like, Autumn, you facilitate the meeting. Like you're comfortable Fairly. in front of a room full of people. And I was like, of course, <laughs> I will be great at this. That's and, great. And um, yeah. And I was terrible at it. I was like uh -huh. really, really terrible at it, but you know, it wasn't like clear to me why I was terrible at it. It was, I was just, you know, I mean, in retrospect, I know that part of what was happening was that I was really trying to direct the room towards the outcome that I believed was best. Yes. And so I was, you know, doing a lot of leading questions and a lot of, well, don't you all agree that, blah, 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 you know? Yes. Um, and can't you all see what's logical here? <laughs> can't you all see <laughs> that this is obviously the way that we're supposed to make this decision? <laughs> um, yes, someone is mm. in the chat is like fireside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. Um, and, and I mean, lucky for me, there were some 
you know, slightly more seasoned practitioners of consensus decision making in the room. So they were able okay. to kind of redirect me. Yeah. Um, but I remember walking out of the room that night, just feeling like, hmm. like, what hmm. was that, you know? And mm-hmm. then a couple of months later, I had the opportunity to go through a facilitation and consensus decision making training with this um, group based in the UK called Seeds for Change. Okay. And that, that was, you know, it was really life altering for me to, you know, learn the practical skill of facilitation to understand, you yeah. know, to understand that there was a different way of being with others that was inherently like not competitive. Right. And yes. then to also learn that in a, you know, one of the things that was really beautiful about that particular um, collegiate environment. It was, it was very um, international, okay. very, very multinational environment, yeah. both like the student organizing space that I was in and also literally any training space that I would enter. Yeah. And so it also gave a different flavor and context to how we're learning facilitation, how we're learning consensus, because we're automatically accounting for the fact that there's, um, that there's no, um, one dominant central culture that we are, you know, making default assumptions from, or like we really can't because it's an international space. Um, So, you know, that was the beginning. That was like where I sort of caught the fever of like, I want to learn how to do this. I want to get really, really good at it. I want to be a really good, I want to be really, really good at facilitation. I want to be really, really good at listening. Like I clocked pretty early on that key to, facilitation was a skill of listening, which as you know, and as we've talked about is not something that we grew up learning how to do. And so, (laughs) you know, it's like, I was like, oh, I have to learn this skill and I want to learn this skill. Yeah. Like I want to be an adult who knows how to listen. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, I feel like you kind of shifted into this, but I want to hear more about this. It's like, how would you say you learned to facilitate? So you took that course and then you were facilitating. And as at some point along the journey, you started to really make it your own, right? Like I think there's the period of facilitation where we're kind of mimicking what we've seen or, or mimicking some concept in our head of like, this is what it looks like to do this well. And then there's something where we learn to bring ourselves into it. Yeah. And I would love to hear for you, how did you learn to facilitate? And at what point do you feel like, oh, I brought, I really brought my own flavor, <laughs> my own self into it? Yeah. That's such a good question. I mean, I definitely 100% learned by doing. Mm-hmm. I, I learned by being a person who like was put in a position and put myself in the position to facilitate um, organizing meetings. Okay. Um, because I was also organizing at the time. So I was, I was a student organizer. And then when yeah. I moved to New York City after um, graduating from college, I got involved with anarchist organizing um, in New York both a network of organizing groups that evolved at that time called the New York Metro Alliance of Anarchists and then the an anarchist POC network. Yeah. Um, and then also within that context, um, co-created the Rock Dove Collective, which was a mutual aid and barter exchange um, uh, project for health and healing. Mm. And so in all of those spaces, I was facilitating. Yep. And... <clears throat> And I would say that um, 
because of the unique nature of those spaces, you mm-hmm. know, the, the combination of, uh, we are explicitly trying to live through a set of values that are not represented anywhere in our society as we do our organizing work. That's right. Um, and we're also bringing, like any organizing space, we're also bringing all of our own um, <clears throat> maladaptive <laughs> like <laughs> socialization into those spaces where we're That's acting right. out patterns of harm and um, patterns of um, disrepair, you know, That's right. and, and reenacting whatever our like ridiculous family patterns are in our organizing spaces and expecting people to like care for us and all, you know, because, of, because of all of that, it was, you know, I, I found myself um, having to take whatever principles I had learned and then get really, really creative mm-hmm. um, in the application of them. And what I, one of the things I remember noticing is that I had to often, um, create the context of a reveal or mm-hmm. create the sense a sense of play inside mm-hmm. the spaces in order for people to experience actual movement because anyone who's been involved in any kind of organizing at all knows that like it can be extremely boring and <laughs> like it can be the actual work of organizing can be yes. very very boring it can be a real slog it can be yes. very demoralizing work yes um and so a I lot think, of data there's a lot of rejection yes. yeah yes and mm-hmm. and what I think the thing that I experienced in myself is like oh I have be- in part because of just my personality and the fact that I'm like relentlessly optimistic and in part because of my theater background and my like you know theater and musical theater specifically training like I can bring a sense of play into a space without losing the seriousness of the content that we're dealing with that's right um and so I think that's how I found my sort of like what's my unique contribution like oh my unique contribution is that I can create a feeling of lightness play bring laughter bring humor um, while also still tending to the seriousness of of what it is that we're working on Mm-hmm. But not la- not really allowing the dynamic of people taking themselves too seriously, which is a big part of what inhibits a lot of our organizing work, right? Yes. It's like, um, <clears throat> you know, we mm. show up and we think that, like, we're the first people who have ever tried to solve the problem. It's just mm-hmm. like a whole, <laughs> it's a whole dynamic, right? It's so serious. It's a whole serious dynamic problem. Um, yeah. And movements. And so I think I think that that's where I really started to find my... You know, and I did things early in my facilitation that, like, I would not do now, but I feel like were were important lessons for me in, like, the power of play. Like, I remember in in one of the first, like, really big convenings that I facilitated, I had attended that same big convening meeting a month prior, had noticed that the white men in the room just, you know they could not, um, they literally would not allow for other voices, right? So mm-hmm. there was a lot of, um, you know, dominating talk, a lot of interruption, a lot of just really, really, you know, problematic behavior. Mm-hmm. And so when my co-facilitator and I decided that we were going to facilitate um, this particular session, we created a game. And again, this is not something I would 
do now. I would okay. not ever do this Okay. Again. This is not an endorsement. Um, this, this is, is not a endorsement. reflection on something that you learned from. Something okay. that I learned from. But was, <laughs> at the time, I was like, I was super proud of this intervention. You know, I killed I would, it. I would okay. find a different way to do it now. But the intervention that we came up with at the time was a game called Just Try to Get the Facilitators Drunk. And we had these little white cards. And we had a stack of little white cards. And every time someone interrupted someone else in the room, I would walk right up to them and hand them a white card. And the number of white cards they had were the number of shots they had to buy for me and my co-facilitator after the meeting was over. Basically as a like, if you make us put up with your interruption, then you have to take us to the bar after the meeting, right? I mean, there's so aspects of brilliance. There's aspects of brilliance this, there. Right? Yes. And, and it did, you know, at first people were like, ha ha ha. And then I would say probably within 20 to 30 minutes, like the white men really slowed it all the way down because there were certain men who kept getting white cards, you know, like yes. we weren't, we weren't joking in terms of the, I'm walking right up to you You're like, and making you just it clear that you are engaging in this behavior. I just said not to do, Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I think that, so I think that, you know, fast forward you know, you know, whatever it is, 15, 20 years later, I don't even know how long ago it was, but fast forward to now, I wouldn't, was like, wait, <laughs> well, everyone's like, but this sounds so good, it sounds right? Amazing. So now, maybe slow it down for people to talk about like, I would why. Say <laughs> now, now that I've learned a lot more about, um, just about like the, all of the things that people are bringing into our organizing spaces related to like alcohol and substance abuse. Yeah. I wouldn't make a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the alcohol as a punchline yeah. in, in the game. I would make it something else. Like I would, yes. and I would maybe reconsider like making, spending money, a punchline <laughs> in the game. That's scene, right. right. That's like, right. Um, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what the innovation would be, but I did, for me, it was the, the, the important thing about the story is that I found a playful way yes. to call attention to a problematic behavior that yes. still kept the people who were engaging in the behavior in the meeting, they right? They were there. Because that's my whole thing is like, <laughs> I love these comments. I love because it. <laughs> I'm like, my whole thing, right? Like, you know, especially right now, you know, as we've reached this point where there's so much polarity and polarizing behavior and polarizing yes. decision-making happening in movement yes. spaces, people really forget. I think sometimes that at the end of the day, the goal is to keep everyone in the room and in the work. That's right. The That's goal right. is not That's to like, right. you know, screen people out of the movement. <laughs> no, <laughs> right? and to create yeah. the smallest bucket of humans that right. get along. It's like, how, mm -hmm. how do you expect to win if you are Try, if you're using your organizing spaces as, you know, you know, a pH strip, right? It's like, no, what we want to do is, is figure out how to keep people in the room, right? right. But how to keep people in the room in a way that feels um, productive and yes. relatively safe, not like safe, safe, but like yeah. relatively safe. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so interesting because it, it also shows the different socializations because I'm just like, oh, like, for me, the shame of having someone walk over with the white card one time would be enough to make me like, get it together, bitch. Like, you, you know, yeah. like, you know, even in, in, in intimate conversation, if someone's like, you interrupted me, I'm like, that's shameful. Like what, you must've done something wrong. Like I had to go through this whole process, right? Oh, and I'm like, like, no, I didn't. Well, you were talking and I was talking and now I'm no, talking again. 
my justification, <laughs> well, actually this, the justification thing happens first for me, right? So I'm like, like you interrupted me four times or whatever. And then I'm like, that's not the thing. The thing right. is, I don't want to be doing the thing, the, the behavior, right? Right. Um, but I, I think that there, I think maybe that's one of the things that has shifted in the movement culture is that now there's such a shame-based movement culture that it's figuring out how do we bring it back to play? But it's like, there are things that we're trying to correct. There are things that we're trying to figure out collectively correct with each other. And now shame is, it's like shame gone wild or we're just shaming everyone so much that people are, I really do think I'm like, I think if I had come into movement now as like a 21 year old, I'm, I don't know that I would make it. Like, I, I think the shaping that I have, I'm like, I don't know that I could withstand the shame hurdles <laughs> to get over it. And I yeah. feel like consensus actually, and good facilitation actually are the things that help us drop under that judgment, the surface level, like I can see your, your bad behavior. Yeah. And so you're saying this in a number of ways, but I want to make it really explicit what would you say are the values that you bring to your facilitation and how have those shifted mm -hmm. over the years that you've been doing the work? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, one of the values that I bring to my facilitation is um, everyone is worthy of mm -hmm. freedom. Um, and everyone has the right to be here. Yes. Just because they are alive. Like that is my belief. <laughs> um, so yeah, everyone is worthy of freedom. Everyone has the right to be here. Um, those are really difficult values to put into practice. So I'm not sitting here yeah. saying like, and I am so on my brain. I'm making you feel <laughs> valued and the presence. Like that's not, <laughs> not, not what I'm saying. Yeah. But, but that's what I strive for, right? So, yes. so the way that that will show up in my facilitation is, you know, that I really pay attention to if, if an individual is triggering me. Right. Yes. And, and in yeah. fact, when, um, when my beloved Marie's and I do our, you know, our anti-oppression facilitation trainings that we do together, yes. one of the yes. things that we talk about is like, you're, you have to deal with, you have to learn to trust your inner facilitator, but you also have to yeah. deal with your inner facilitator and like inner meaning, like, like when I am, when I enter a space as a facilitator, I don't stop being a human being with judgments and reactions to the people in the room. Right. Like yes. I was just facilitating a space a couple of months ago where like, I'm, there was a person, a new person joining a group that I was okay. working with. And I was just like, had a total aversion response to this person. Yeah. Total aversion response. And I can tell you, I could tell you like what things the person said that like, yeah. you know, and I didn't like, like. They earned my aversion. Right. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day, what mattered is my immediate reaction was aversion. Yes. And I still had to figure out how to be like, and you are welcome here and you are totally deserving of freedom. That's right. That's <laughs> like, right. Right. But that's but, right. But I can't facilitate. I can't facilitate that. 
Yeah. If I don't own the fact that the aversion response is happening inside of me. That's right. And, and, you know, this is something you and I talk about all the time, Adrian, but like one of the big things I'm working on in my healing journey right now is like being responsible for my own feelings. That's meaning, right. meaning like if I'm feeling a feeling, I have to really avoid the part of that process where I try to say like, you are making me feel this feeling. That's right. right. <laughs> and in, instead to like, have, I have to take myself through a set of rational steps where I'm like, other people would be in the same situation and have different right. feelings in response to these conditions. So in, for instance, it, right. It doesn't make any sense, but that's, that's true. Right. So like in that meeting I'm talking about, right. Like other people did not experience an aversion response to that person. Right. Or some people did, some people didn't. So yeah. I had to be like, I'm having aversion to this That's person. Right. That's right. Not we are having it. Right. And it's really right. easy. It's really easy. Mm. And, and in some ways, even easier, I think, in when we're trying to do consensus work, it's yeah. really easy to we to we out, you know. <laughs> so like, to we all the way out. To we all the way out and not be well, able to be responsible we for don't self. Like that person and we don't agree with this decision. And you exactly. know, what I mean? it's like we block even, this. <laughs> even even right. Yes. And even as a facilitator, it's really easy to to begin from we as opposed to just begin. I mean, it's such a trite thing to say, but the whole speaking from the I thing really applies to the facilitator too. Like you have to be yes. able to say, here's what's happening inside of me. I'm going to take full responsibility for what's happening inside of me and know that I still have to make strategic choices on behalf of the group yes. informed by what's happening inside me, yes. but not necessarily in reaction to what's happening inside me. I, I love the distinction you're making here too, because it's like, you know, I, I've just been channeling a ton about how we are not separate. We are all interconnected and the interconnection, the job inside the interconnection is to be ourself, to be the one, to be the self, right? It's like, I have to fully be myself, being in relationship with all these other beings, being themselves. That's where the we is. I'm always connected to all of them. And so what you're speaking of to me is the mindfulness of facilitation, right? Like, mm -hmm. this is why I, I was like, this is a spiritual act. This is spiritual behavior, you know, and at first, it was so pragmatic when I, you know, I think w when we first start facilitating, it's like, I'm just going to do this and this and this and this. Hand and then signals. there's some hand signals. And then there, <laughs> what you're talking about is that moment where you're just like, I got to drop into me and be aware of me and then take action that actually builds this container for something larger than myself. Right. And, and, and be in yeah. a state of, you know, the more I drop into myself and the more yes. I take responsibility for my own feelings, yeah. the more I can trust the information, right? Yeah, that's and right. And so, because that's it's right. not, it's not like I experience the aversion response and I'm like, oh, I don't trust that. Yeah. It's inside me. It's that's rather right. like, oh, I'm noticing I'm having an aversion response. Let me get curious yes. about my aversion response to this person. What might they be bringing into this room? That's right. That is shifting. It's like shifting the um, landscape, not just for me, but for potentially other people. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I often feel that when people are like, when I'm like, I've got a gorgeous agenda planned and like, I can totally see how we're going to get somewhere. And someone walks in clearly in emotional needs that are about something different. You know, I'm like, you're in a funk. Your funk is loud. What the funk is going on <laughs> with you? Because we... <laughs> are like trying to make history and you're over here funking it out and like whatever it is. And it's just like that aversion is actually often um, 
an unmet need or an unspoken need has shown up in the room. And mm. um, in the book, there's a whole section on problem participants and this idea that like they each bring something to the space. They're each bringing a need into the space. They're each bringing something that's true for that community is in that person. Right. Totally. Right? And we're totally. like, oh, if we could just dismiss them. And so then that makes consensus that much more challenging. And so I want to come into the consensus. Like yeah. you've been teaching consensus for years. I always tell people um, shamelessly that you are the entire reason why almost everything in movement has happened. Um, because <laughs> It's um, just me. It's just autumn really. <laughs> all roads lead back through the channel of autumn. Um, but I do think that part of what I wanted to do with this book is shine a light on some of the people who have shaped things behind the scenes um, so that people understand like, it's not like something like Occupy or Black Lives Matter or all these things just like magically happen or appear out of outer space or something. They might, but there's a, a piece of interpretation that happens with the facilitators and with the mediators and the people mm. who are like, let me teach and train something. Yeah. And you have been teaching small rooms of people, large rooms of people for decades, <laughs> how to do consensus. Right. So I want to ask you, before we even jump into the good part, what do people mostly misinterpret about consensus? Like when, oh, when, yeah. when you say consensus to people, what's the thing that they say back to you? Yeah, the first reaction that most people, or the, the, the story that I hear, the reaction that people typically have is, ugh. Um, <laughs> ugh. Ugh. You know, <laughs> and it's messy and it takes too long. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, aversion, <laughs> aversion, <laughs> aversion, messy, takes too long. Great. Um, and, um, and so I would say too, like, I don't, I'm not saying that any of those things are misconceptions. Yeah. Um, but I would say <laughs> that, I would say that like, I would say that the, the misconception I suppose embedded in that is, um, that, um, <laughs> that 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 decision making with other human beings would be like anything other than messy yeah. and and like time intensive um yeah like there's some <laughs> neat efficient way to do things that actually right. like, like works for the collective yeah um and like it's that mm-hmm. whole like utopian trap right where it's like mm-hmm. there's there's no utopia like there's no there's no utopian way of making decisions together. Like that is a fantasy that just exists to keep us from trying things that would work. That's, that's right. right. That's my perspective to, you know, mm. be a little bit conspiracy theory on it. Um, and I will say like in my experience with consensus decision-making one, it is absolutely our first way of making decisions. It is 100% like we are creatures that really, really, really prefer to consent and prefer to receive consent, right? right. We prefer to cooperate and we prefer to experience things cooperatively. Like that is, you know, you can see it in our biology. You can see it um, not just, and I don't mean just in terms of like um, biological history or genetic history or, Mm -hmm. you know, evolutionary history in terms of human communities. But I mean, like literally inside our bodies, Yes. We have consent-based relationships with other species, right? Yes. <laughs> like inside our guts, inside yeah. our brains. Like that is how, mm-hmm. that, is, that is literally our makeup, right? Uh-huh. And so, you know, so, <clears throat> 
So is it difficult? Absolutely. It's difficult because um, we lend, we live under chronically oppressive conditions mm-hmm. where we have many of us been trained and traumatized out of our innate capacity to consent with one another. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's like a practice we have to remember. Mm. And, but I think it's, it's served by remembering that it's already there. Like it's already, it's already there inside of us. We already, we, and we already want it. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and I, you know, anyone who has been to one of my workshops who has heard me talk about this in the past will know, like I'm kind of a broken record on this, but the whole idea that consensus takes too long is just a fallacy, right? Yeah. Like too long, meaning, you know, if you've ever been a part of a, you know, hierarchical organization, you know that <laughs> like if if someone in charge makes a decision that no one else agrees with, yes, it's very difficult to make that thing happen, right? Oh, it takes yes. a it very long time. Right. Yes. And so it's so uh, to me, it's about like, choose your poison. Like, do you want the long, do you want the, do you want it to take a long time on the front end? Yeah. Or do you want it to take a long time on the back end of implementation? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) With everyone growing more and more miserable. Exactly. And, and my whole thing, you know, like I'm a part of a worker owned cooperative. We are democratically owned and managed. What's it called? AORTA, AORTA, the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training (laughs) Alliance. Um, awesome. <laughs> we are awesome. And we are, we are worker-owned cooperative. We are democratic. We are horizontal. And, um, you know, and we're, our decision-making process like continues to evolve all the time. And yeah. so we're, we're in a moment of evolution right now. But one of the things that we have um, found at multiple points in our life as an organization is that we are highly efficient at making decisions by That's consensus right. when, That's we right. have a, when we have a high level of alignment. Right. That's right. Around a particular decision. And so it's so it's just it's just not the case that it always takes a long time. Right. I love that. One of the things one of the things that I've learned through the process that we've learned through the process is that when you have when you've done the work to build alignment and when you're working from a shared set of values, which is something that I talk about in my essay in the book. Yes. um, You can actually make decisions very, very quickly. That's right. Right. It's, I feel like you were the first person who helped me understand that that was the case. Like back when I was heading into uh, ruckus, like being an idiot ruckus. And it was like, I had that concept of like, I am an efficient Virgo. I like to get things done very quickly. And I always know what the right decision is. And I'm just trying to get people there as fast as possible. Right. And you were like, <laughs> just let me lead you. <laughs> I was like, basically just let me make all the decisions. Um, but then I was like, oh, that doesn't work. I don't know all the things. I don't know most of the things. I don't know 98% of the things. I know 2% really good, but the consensus <laughs> to me, consensus also allows the hundred percent of knowledge to come to the table and be well used. And like, that's more efficient. And then I also felt like it was a trust building activity. And so one of the things you say in your essay is the recipe for making consensus work is simple, but the work is fierce. Ingredients include alignment, time, or timelessness, a spiritual practice of forgetting urgency. I love, I love. Um, (laughs) Trust, remembering each other, and principled stance. When we need to reach consensus, we mix the following ingredients and the resulting dish is quite magical. And Mm -hmm. I just, I wanna, I wanna ask you to just extrapolate on all those pieces just a bit and tell us in your vision, what do you think would become possible for our movements 
if we were all skilled in consensus. Yeah. Um, okay, so first question first. Mm-hmm. Extrapolate on on yeah, just this alignment, time, trust, and stance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Like that, yeah. that ingredient set. Yeah. Okay. So it's so fun to go back and look at this. Also, I'm just like, God. <laughs> I, I said it's a, a great. It's a great essay. I said smart things, and it's short. One of the things I like about it is a really short essay. I, um, I love it, and it's all here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, like, oh yeah, this is this is basically what it is. Yeah. Um. So one of the things I talk about in the essay is that you know, a big part of what makes it difficult to reach consensus is that we think we're saying the same thing because Mm. we're using similar language, Mm. but we're not meaning the same thing with Mm -hmm. the words that we're using, right? And and we see this all the time in movements right now, right? Because like, you know, my favorite is like, everybody's using the word intersectionality. Everybody. And I'm like, none of y'all know what that word means. (laughs) Like, no, it's not you, like an intersection you, in the street. Right. It's not like you're like, I'm an intersectional person. It's like, no, that's not what the word means. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what it means. Um, so I anyway, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a stickler for definitions, but I do think, I do think that in like, in some regards, this is kind of an important, this is an important point. Yes. That, you know, one if we don't actually, you know, it's what in Tanya Lee talks about with principled struggle, right? If we yes. don't slow down and learn first yes. and pause, do the reading, do like do the actual work to understand what we're talking about and make sure that we are all on the same page about what we're talking about, then yes. we can't, we, we're not going to meaningfully agree. That's right. Okay. Um, and when we don't meaningfully agree, like if we think that we've agreed, but we didn't actually, then that is going to create the conditions for a lot of chaos later. Yes. So that's about, that's what the alignment yeah. is, the right? crack in the foundation. Yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> the piece of it on time is, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, I think we, we exist under racial capitalism, yes. right? which has a, um, uh, the, the way that we have all been, you know, socialized to relate to time under racial capitalism is primary, primarily through the lens of, um, you know, fear and productivity. Um, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not the only way that time operates. Right. And it's not even the oldest way that we might think about time. Right. It's actually a very recent way of thinking about time and thinking about how we use time. And so the invitation in the essay is really just to consider, you know, first there's a practical consideration, which is like, what, what are we actually going to be able to accomplish in the time that we currently have to work with? Right. right. And um, where I see a lot of groups struggle and fail in trying to use consensus is, um, you know, essentially just biting off more than they can chew, right? Like trying- <laughs> we have 45 minutes for this consensus process. Right. And it's like, you know, and work. you have 45 minutes and you don't even have all the people in the room who would actually need to be there in order to be able to make the decision, right? It's that's like, because right. sometimes that's the other, that's the other issue, right? Is like, we have to pause and, I mean, this is related to the um, extending trust piece, but we have to pause and recognize, like, if we are or are not the people to make the choice. That's right. You know, um, are we or are we not the people who get to consent to That's this right. particular plan, right? That's and right. If, if we are not, then 
we have to be honest with ourselves about that and invite the people in who need to be there. That's right. Um, and, and that to me, that it, that interplays with the relationship of, you know, timelessness or forgetting urgency, you know, that like mm. most, most of what we believe to be urgent in our current culture is just absolutely not urgent. That's right. It is absolutely not urgent. And That's when right. you're talking about organizing work, you know, like, there are absolutely, there are emergencies, yes. right? But most of the issues that we are working on are long range, like, and long range as in like, I have to orient to the idea that the victory will not happen in my lifetime. Yes. Not only do I orient to that, like yeah. every day of my life, yes. <laughs> I, but I orient to like, it may not be in my, it won't be in my lifetime, may not even be in my children's lifetime. Right. Yes. Like I'm bringing a Harriet Tubman orientation to my yes. work. That's right. right. <laughs> That's, That's right. That is what I'm bringing, which means that I can let go of a lot of the false sense of urgency that's applied to our work. And I can really, you know, bring more of a sense of, um, you know, long term strategy. Yes. Long range commitment. That's and right. I also I mean, personally, I think in our movement, if if we could forget <laughs> urgency and orient to time in a different way, I think we would make such better decisions. We would I make agree. such more strategic decisions because we wouldn't be in the like navel gazing, like this is about my freedom mm. as individuals. Like, no, it's not about your freedom. It's not about your individual freedom. It can't be, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it cannot be about your individual freedom. So anyway, that's- Yeah, no, that's- I'm probably that's... going off on a tangent, but- I really appreciate that tangent. I keep trying to uplift. I just saw this quote come through the world. Barbara Smith said that um, they they ran with the identity and dropped the politics. And Oops. it feels really relevant in this moment, right? Because a lot of the urgency is also driven by like an urgent individual need to have our identities recognized in a particular way, mm -hmm. which political understanding will tell you only a political revolution will lead to the identity the wholeness, the belonging, the being cared for, the being a part of something that we're actually all longing for when we say, I'm a this, 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 and this. Right. And it's like, yes, but I don't want to sit in the suffering of that. I want to sit in a politic that organizes such that all of those things are liberation points. And it was just such a like, and I yeah. think consensus actually is one of the ways in the present moment that we can practice all getting to show up with all of the different shapings and oppressions and everything else that has happened and and actually practice being free and and on the same level with each other right that it's like what we all bring to the table it it matters it, it gets yeah. to flat like not flatten out but it just gets to all be of a level right it's like if someone comes in and says i deeply disagree with that and here's the politic of that we all get shaped by that politic it's right. not like that right. person just gets to win. And so I want to bring you back into that principled stance piece and like what unprincipled versus principled stance looks like in organizing. Yeah. Well, so the the line, the, I think the key line here that's in the essay is yeah. that you cannot meaningfully agree unless you've meaningfully disagreed. Oof. I um, love that. Say it again. You cannot meaningfully agree until you have meaningfully disagreed. Mm. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And please, everyone who is watching, <laughs> listening, feel free to like, you know, just take these words 
and bring them into whatever corner of your life <laughs> they may be medicine for. <laughs> yes, let it be a seed. For myself, I know for myself, this this is this is what this I this thought has been medicine for a lot of a lot of parts of my life that needed that medicine and understanding. Right. Like, oh, like you know, I want to know. Um, I want to know what it means to fight with you. I want to know what it means to struggle with you because unless I know that we can struggle and resolve it, that we can fight and then hold each other, you yes. know, um, <laughs> then I can't trust your yes. Yes. Like until I know where your no is, how do I trust your yes? It's, an, it's another way of thinking about it. It's really, about, right. it's really about boundaries, right? Because right. I want to make the connection here between consensus, consent, boundaries, and stance. So I'm here. I'm, I'm with it. Here we go. So, <laughs> so right. So consensus is fundamentally about finding the place where where um, you and I can mm -hmm. be in consent about how we are moving forward together. Right. Yeah. In order to be able to do that well, you have to be clear in what your like. What are the boundaries of what you mm. are? I'm a full body yes to, and I'm actually a full body no to. And That's here's right. the place where I can be kind of porous. I can be moved, and I have to know that for myself. We have to be able to show up fully to a conversation and be at ease with the fact That's that right. like I have yeses, I have nos, and I have places where I can be moved, and so do you, and so does every human being, right? Mm. In order to be able to step into that struggle, you know, we have to be able to hold a stance that really honors the fact that in my body, I have a yes and a no. That's right. Right. In your body, you have a yes and a no. Mm. And there is no shame in the yes and the no. Right. Um, I mean, shame can cover it. Yes. <laughs> but in, it, in, it in and of itself, there's no shame. Yeah. Um, and so that to me is where the, the, the ability to sort of like to honestly assess myself yeah. and to have an honest assessment of you and yeah. of other people who are in the process um, to know that like, I'm not going to hold back. Yeah. And I'm also not going to overextend, you know, when That's we think right. about, when we think about principled stance, like I think about it in a, from a, you know, a body standpoint where it's like my, my stance that where I can be in, principled struggle with other people is yeah. the stance where I'm neither cowering and protecting myself, which means usually I'm withholding something, right? I'm not protecting myself, but I'm also not like overextending and trying to, you know, manipulate others That's or right. trying to aggress on others. Right. That's right. I'm, I'm staying in myself. I'm staying in myself. And that is what enables me to know if I'm consenting yes. and if I have consent. That's right. I love that. And I really love that you brought the body into all of it because I think that we forget the body. I know when I was, I, when I think about like what value has shifted for me in facilitation, I think I really used to facilitate the brains in the room and then wow. slowly shifted into facilitating the bodies and trusting that the bodies are constantly communicating. The body is where we feel distrust, where we feel togetherness. And I wanted to ask you that question. It's like, why do you think we so easily forget the body in facilitation mm -hmm. and, and what has engaging the body made more possible in your facilitation? And I know that you've also been doing a ton of somatic work alongside of the facilitation work you do. And so just anything that wants to flow into that. Yeah. Um, 
like there's a traditional way of um, thinking about facilitation where, where it's bifurcated, where it's like the facilitator um, handles the process. So the group can handle the content. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and I think that that's the way that most of most people, when they're initially trained to do facilitation, they're trained to think of it that way. Is that yeah. like, I'm doing the process so that the group yes. can do the content and they don't have to worry about the process and blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. you know, of course, like with all these things, like there's a grain of truth in it in as much as ideally, if you're holding the process well, then yeah. the group can trust that it's held and they don't have to necessarily be trying to hold it with you. Yes. Yes. Um, or overhold it. Um, but I think that like the intervention for me, that's related to the body. And it's again, something that Marie's and I have talked about in, in the workshops that we teach is the idea that like the process is the content, right? It's like the process is, is what like what is happening between us yes. is what's happening, you know? Right. And, and a group will, a group will sort of find what its suffering is. Yes. And that suffering will show up regardless of what, <laughs> what the issue is that they're dealing with, right? That's right. It's like, I mean, we've all, anyone who's been in the workplace knows that that is what happens, right? That That's like, right. we can be, the content can change from week to week, but the dynamic, yes, um, the dynamic is what the dynamic is, unless yes. we are, unless we're like actively working with it, right? Mm. And the only way to work with it, I think, is through the body because, like, right. our 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 brains. Oh my god! Mm. I mean, I love brains. I love brains. <laughs> I, just, I think that it. I think that like I think it's so cool that evolution. So cool produce something like a brain like I mean wow. outstanding I have to yes. say I just started a few <laughs> okay not just started but like a couple of years ago I was doing <laughs> a book that I've never been able to finish because my my life but oh, I love you so much other minds oh yes the octopus the sea and the deep origins of consciousness just a plug for if you're interested in brains this is about like how octopuses occupy basically developed similarly complex brains, but through a completely different process. Anyway, brains are great, but, but. And yet. And yes, and yes. Like there's a bifurcation in, again. I really like I, that word. Bifurcation, so helpful. Awesome. It's like, it, again, it's part, it's a large part based on or caused by, you know, the way racial capitalism forces us to dissociate our, our, minds and bodies right? right the dissociation is you know basically uh helps mm. us stay productive inside it, it also helps yes. us survive it all the things yes. um but it means that our brains end up becoming a place where we go to hide from our emotions mm. right and so and, and i think the challenge with that is that there's all kinds of stuff that our bodies can be doing yes and our emotions can be happening Yes. Without us ever having to think about it, because we're That's hiding right. up here, you know, That's right. or over here, like it's not yeah. up or down. Yeah. Um, and so I think that the the body is where all of this stuff, the bot, like my body, your body, if we're in the same space, our bodies yes. together, like yeah. that is where the things are actually happening. Our brains right. is where we can kind of go to be offline from our bodies. Yeah. And or, and also we, to like make meaning and stuff, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, you're, we're making a meaning about this, but 
you know, like I will often be in a room where I'm like, oh, you're thinking about trusting each other and you're saying you're trusting each other, but you're not trusting each other. Right. <laughs> you're not, you're like, you didn't, you didn't land. Like it. that part of actual <laughs> trust is not happening with, right. you're waiting for someone to tr- prove themselves as trustworthy, which is very different from extending trust right. to and human often, beings who are going to make mistakes. <laughs> and often waiting for them to prove their trustworthiness based on some sort of scale or standard that you've never actually articulated outside of your mind. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Ah, so, so, love. And so that where for me, it's like the, the, it's not, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that it's all that, that, um, that we work with the body over the mind, but no. rather that we're, that the, because the body is where so much of this stuff is happening and yeah. because of that bifurcation that many of us have learned as a coping mechanism for living under chronically oppressed conditions, Yes. then we basically have to find a way to, you know, you know, to find like one way in or another that ultimately supports us like weaving it back together. Right. Yeah. And for some people, you know, I mean, and I, I think about this a lot as a, as a, as a survivor myself mm-hmm. and as someone who facilitates a lot of spaces, I mean, mm-hmm. anyone who's facilitating a space is facilitating a space with a survivor in it. Right. That's right. At least one. Yeah. And so I know, I know, I know from my own experience and from, um, from what I've learned from other facilitators, right. That like, the body isn't necessarily a safe place for most people to begin. So I'm definitely not out here saying like, you know, that we want to be embodied all the time. Right. And for many of us, it's like, it is safer to be over here for now. Right. But that's not, that's not the, that's not the end, you know? So just like, just like getting embodied is not the end. Staying in the mind is not the end either to me. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think for me, the goal in a lot of ways is that full integration of the self. Like the mind is not apart from the body. What we want to do is find a way to have it all aligned in the same way that we come into a room. And it's like we're actually not able to hold the apartness, even if we think we can hold an apartness. It's like we're we're we don't have issues that are apart from each other. We don't have histories that are apart from each other, our lineages. Right. can't be pulled apart from each other and the complexity can be overwhelming. It would be so much easier um, if the compartmentalization could work. It just doesn't work. It right? just doesn't and work. The years of experimentation and of attempts to put people in these compartments has shown that that doesn't work. And so I also think though, part of what, part of what your work I, I think points to is also that discretion of like, which room am I in? Right. Because in that I always think of it as like that long term political home space, like that's where you want to bring the whole self and the whole self should feel fully belonging, you know, that full belonging, that full I can be here. Mm -hmm. And that to me is where consensus is the most important place to practice. Right. Is that it's like we are here and we are getting deeply aligned with everything. And then there's spaces where that might not be possible. Right. And I also think that's important to notice. It's like, oh, this is an alliance where we have so many different ways of being. And I literally have done that kind of alliance work with groups who are deeply embodied and groups who are like deeply in brain coming into the same room, like, why are we having to take breath? You know, or whatever. And it's just like, <laughs> I hate breathing. I hate breathing. Yeah. I literally, <laughs> you can't make this up, right? I mean, it's so, real. It's real. It's real. And, and, and bringing all that into the space and being like, this is not the space 
for this practice necessarily, right? Yeah. Like we may not all be at the same because we don't have the alignment you spoke about. And I, I want to, yeah. well, one last thing I want to name about that, that connects back to the essay is that, yeah. you know, in this piece around extending trust, yes, something in what you shared just caused this to come up in me that, you know, I think we have to be able to differentiate between extending trust and projecting need. You know, that's right. And I think what happens mm. sometimes, right, is like we do, we bring, we bring it, we project a need or like, um, or, you know, put a need into a space that can't be met by that space. Yes. And then when it's not met, you know, we rail against that. Space. We rail against that space or we rail yes. against those people. And it's like, well, did any of the people in that space consent to hold you in that way? No. You know, was this space designed to hold you in that way? You know, like, no, probably not. Yeah. And it's like, it's like the, it also in the book in Tanya Lee talking about principled mm-hmm. struggle. This is principled struggle is like one of the key frameworks for me right now in my work. Right. Yes. It's like, and this idea that like, not every space is for the thing that you are bringing and That's you right. do have to, it's again, taking responsibility for your own feelings and recognizing that yes. like you have discretion to decide what you bring into the space. And if you bring something into the space that the space is not for, that doesn't mean that anyone is harming you. Yes. Right. It just means that the space wasn't for that. Yeah. Right. And it, and yeah. it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you for having that need either. It just exactly. means that there needs to, there's like a different space that has to be able to be constructed to hold that thing. That's right. And I've That's been right. there. Like I have 100%. I mean, I'm a Sagittarius. I'm an extrovert. I'm 100% the person <laughs> who is like, I have a thought. And a need. And then it's like crickets. And I'm like, <laughs> how dare you all not understand that this I is can't a need. believe you didn't respond with, you know, affirmation of my brilliance. Um, no, it's, it's, mm-hmm. and it is, it's beautiful. It's humbling. And it requires a level of responsibility that I think of as anti-capitalist also, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that capitalism is constantly training us that wherever we go, our needs should be met. Someone should be giving us money like this, 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 like it's everything mm-hmm. should be convenient. Like there's almost the expectation now of emotional convenience or even your healing, everything, everything, even your right? healing, everything. And that you shouldn't have to do it. Like someone else will do it for you. And I Hello. think there's so much here that's saying actually in every circumstance where we want to have that deep satisfaction of being met by life, we have to come and meet life right? We have to do our part of that right. work. And consensus is really about that. We have to come and meet this. Right. Um, I know we're at the hour. I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. Can you go like 10 more minutes? I totally can. I'm going to like do the thing where, yeah. oh, I'm on my phone. You know yes, what? You're on your here, phone. We, here we go. Uh, while you ask me those questions, I'm going Great. to chat my coworker and be like, girl, I'm running late. I'm on an IG live. She'll be totally. She'll be totally fine with it because she's awesome. Okay, great. Um, Yeah, but go ahead. I can. I can multitask. I just want to ask you what. (laughs) I love you. I want to ask you a couple of questions about writing process, about like the 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 development of this, because I do feel like when I reached out to everyone to ask about these essays, like if people would write these essays, it was really like write something short and sweet, you know, something that feels like the, the essence of this. And some people came back with essence and some people came back with a lot more than essence and all of it was great. And yours really was like essence, right? 
So, but like you asked for one page, you asked for a page, you asked for a realm of thought, but I also, I guess people can hear talking to you. You have so much that you could offer on this. I do think you could write a whole book on this. And so I wanted to ask you like, what was your writing process? Like, how did you take all these years of knowledge and get it into something so succinct and clear? Well, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I have you to credit for that. You asked, you, you invited a couple of formats Mm -hmm. and one of the formats that you offered was the idea of a recipe Mm -hmm. and which was so, which was so fun because, um, because of that story I tell at the top of the essay about the, um, the too many cooks activity. Yes. So it prompted me to kind of reflect on like, what have I, um, what have I learned from years of facilitating the same activity as a way of like trying to teach people consensus, but also the recipe, the recipe format, um, helped me, I, you know, I was short on time. I was, I was short on time as usual. Um, and under, you know, an Adrian Marie Brown deadline, which for people who are, (laughs) you know, watching the, um, watching this, um, you, you see how much Adrian produces and part (laughs) of how she does that (laughs) by having like, bananas deadlines um so so I'm like all right how am I going to meet the Adrian Marie Brown Virgo deadline and um and then this the recipe format and so for me that was what inspired the succinctness Uh um and helped me sort of drill it down in terms of thinking about like well what you know what would I say you know there there are so many ways that people teach consensus yes Um, there's so many different, like, even if you just look at like the models for like, what are the steps of the decision-making process? Like they range from five to 11 and it's like, (laughs) you know, but if I really wanted to look at what, what is the unique combination of elements that, that you have to have in order for it to work? Yeah. That's, that's what came through for me. I love it. Yeah. Um, how does it feel having this essay out? Oh my God. It's so lovely because, um, well, one, because I didn't remember what I wrote. Um, I love because, when that happens. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. It's like always fun to like reread something and be like, I knew something. Wow, whoever wrote this is so smart. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and what's nice is, um, what's nice about rereading it too is that it's like, helps me, it helps me remember some things. You know, I'm like, that's right. That's right. It is about remembering each other. It is about forgetting urgency and like, wow, in my life right now. Yeah. And all, I mean, especially in the wake of this, we're not in the wake of the pandemic. We're still in the pandemic, but in the, yeah. in, the in the wake of a wave, in the in the wake of the first wave, right, yeah. or the third wave, or whatever, you know, at, in where you've been in this a year and a half, and um, and. I have, I have had to figure out how to practice a lot of this stuff with my children. Yeah. Um, and which is, you know, because like we are who we have right now and, um, and you know, the, this idea of like extending trust is like, it's very, very powerful, very spiritually powerful to have to like, extend trust to your children when you know they came from you yeah 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I yes. know that they came from me and I have to extend trust. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh. Yeah. Uh, you were you know, an embryo. You were an embryo. Are you trustworthy? And also, <laughs> and also, like you were shaped by me, right? And I know yes. what my I know what my patterns are, yeah. but I have to extend trust to you, right? And so, mm-hmm. I love that you went there because one of the questions that was in the question box was, "Is there a connection in facilitation styles and parenting styles? Um, so yeah. How does that manifest in your life? Um, is there anything else you want to say on on that?" Um, I love this question. Um, I, I'm sure that there is, um, I think either the connection being that there's a lot of similarity or probably that there are some people who are like really opposite, like they show mm-hmm. up in their work in a certain way and then they show up in their home life in a, in a different way. Um, I'm like a pretty integrated person. So, yeah. um, like I'm very, I have a very dominant personality. I'm very hmm. dominant facilitator and I'm a very dominant parent, Right. Um, and, and sister, and sister, I like <laughs> exactly, Which, you know, and I, and I mean, I do mean dominant, not dominating. Right. So yeah, I'm not like right. out here trying to control others, but yeah. I'm also very like, this is what I think and feel. Yeah. Now, what do you think and feel? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And I think that that's, you know, um, as a facilitator, I think where that serves me is that, you know, when I'm facilitating a group. Typically, unless some shit is going down in my life that's making me really have a hard time facilitating, typically a group will know that I've got it, right? Yes. Like I am very in control of the process yeah. and folks can really know that like they can trust that I'm holding it, right? Yeah. I've only had a couple of moments really in my career where it's like, I don't have it. And it's usually yeah. because of personal crisis. And similarly yeah. with my children, you know, like I'm not an aggressive parent. I'm not scary. I'm not like overly yeah. controlling, although they would say that I'm overly protective, but whatever. I'm whatever. like par- trying to parent <laughs> trying to parent with boundaries in a world without boundaries is very no, difficult. It's very, very, very hard. But I would say as a parent, I'm I'm dominant in as much as like my kids know yeah. how things work in my yeah. house, right? Like they, right. they know what the rules are. Yeah. They know what flies and what doesn't fly. And they know where the boundaries are. They do. You know, so that that would yeah. be my my similarity. And at, when you're saying this, I just want to point people, someone just mentioned it, went by real quickly. But um, Autumn was just interviewed for the Emergent Strategy podcast by Mia Herndon. And they have a really beautiful conversation there about parenting. Um, and so if you want to deep dive into that, you can go there. Um, there's another question in the question box I want to ask you, and then we'll be done. Can you speak to facilitating and how it feeds or depletes your spiritual side? Ooh, wow. That is very cool. That very good? cool question. Thank I you for that Moni question. Perrin. Moni, Moni. Um, can you speak to facilitation and how it feeds or depletes? Um, <clears throat> I would say um, facilitation... I often do find, um, I, I experience it as a spiritual practice. Mm. Um, I, I really do. I mean, it's been different in the last year of virtual facilitation. That's not, it's virtual facilitation is not the same experience in my, in my experience as being in a room of other people, like being embodied with others. Um, 
there's a lot, there's a lot that's wonderful about virtual, but there's a lot of limitations too. Um, I do. So I do experience it as spiritual practice. I would say though, that I also do experience it as depleting. Um, Uh So I, I don't think of like, I don't necessarily think of like spiritual practices as things that are always feeding me. I think that in some cases, um, some of our spiritual practices by necessity of like what they are can, they can take a lot from us. Yes. Um, And, you know, and I do think that I'm, I'm probably in the camp of people who like, because of the way I facilitate, I think it can be kind of, um, it can deplete some of my resources. I think that's true for a lot of black and brown women. Um, I think that like one of the things that we miss in movements generally is like how often black and brown women are holding these spaces and how much it takes from us to hold these spaces. Um, That doesn't mean that I don't find joy in it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't nourish some part of me, but the fact that it, for me, the fact that it's spiritual doesn't mean that it's not depleting. I love that. You know, when I first came into facilitating, my visual was that each person there had a tie to me, a tether, like was connected to me and was pulling me in different directions. And my job was to be balancing. And so it was no wonder that I felt deeply depleted from that framework. Right. I was just like, oh, I am literally being pulled, 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 pulled around the whole time. I feel like for a period of time, I found a way to make it energizing. And it was that I only took clients that I felt really excited by so that the whole time we were doing it, I was like, holy shit, we are making <laughs> like the most exciting things in history happen. Brains, and like, brains, 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 oh, brains. wow. Yeah. I was just like, I'm excited by the people. I'm excited by the purpose. Mm-hmm. It's climate justice. It's black liberation. It's, you know, it's so clear. Um, the thing that I find depleting now is that there's a lot of people who don't seem that to be there focus on movement. They don't seem to be be there focused on those long-term goals. I feel like a lot of people have come into the space who need to be politicized. And I'm like, until that politicization happens, facilitators are having to do double, triple, quadruple duty of trying to hold a space for some yeah. movement to happen in spite of all the, the, that, that lacking common ground. Um, so I'm really hoping, <laughs> you know, part of this is also like, I want to create more spaces for orientation and politicization of people who are, who are entering so that they can enter well, so that we can be responsible for bigger numbers actually being well held in, in it. Cause I do want movement to be sanctuary space and I want it to be a space that can be spiritual for, for everyone who's in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that you have to head off to work. Um, is there anything you want to just leave with people as a, as like, here's how I want you to use my essay. Like, here's how I want you to use this as you move forward, you know? I, I guess the one thing I would say is like, try it with your friends first. I love that. That's, <laughs> <laughs> try it with your friends. Try, with try your it friends. with your friends. Start, okay. Start, start with people that you actually trust and just see like, see where it goes from there. I, w- I wouldn't say like, start trying consensus with your, you know, highest stakes, with your <laughs> highest stakes relationships first. <laughs> That's right. Um, no, practice, 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 practice. and yeah. see, because when you see that it works, it's really compelling to keep trying it. Exactly. Um, and I always say, we always say it's a very nerdy, but true, um, that the more decisions you make together, the more decisions you have to make together. Oh, it's so cute. You're so adorable. <laughs> 
thank you so much for making time in your day to do this with me. Oh my um, God, thank you for giving me my first IG live experience and also oh, I, for so including my work in your beautiful book, which, you know, see how, see how succinct the whole book is people. The whole book is succinct. The whole book is succinct and it's very useful. So, and it thank comes, you. if you order it from AK Press, it comes with a cute little journal. Adorbs, yeah. adorable. The journal is goals. Um, <laughs> tomorrow I will be on here with Alexis Pauline Gums, and <gasps> I know it's going to be great. Thanks. I want to. We're basically going to swim through, swim through breath and breathing, and then Makani Thimba on Thursday and Adaku Uta on Friday. So it's just a stellar oh. week. Um, and um, I love all, all the, of those people. I, I know. <laughs> well, this is what I'm realizing. More and more of my work is basically just like, I love people who are smart and here is what they are smart about. <laughs> like, and that's my book. Um, so um, what was I going to say? Oh, I'm saving all of these lives. So if you, you know, if someone you know needs it, you can pass it along. You can send it to them. They'll all be in the Holding Change IG series. Um, all right. All right. Love, love you. Love you. Mm -hmm. Bye. Thanks, Bye. everybody.